everybody, welcome back to Stop It. That's not how any of this works. Uh, this week I have a friend of mine with me, um, but before I introduce her, I did want to share with you guys um, that given that this podcast is uh, predominantly going to be addressing mental health type things. Um, a couple of people who listened to the boundaries episode last week had mentioned that I didn't introduce my friend uh, and that was done very intentionally. Um, I am a licensed therapist. I typically follow HIPAA compliance with all things and that is going to be the case with this podcast. So unless I have guests on like I did with my friend Heather who was introducing her own podcast, uh, I will not be bringing up anybody's names during this podcast. So everybody will be referred to as a friend or a colleague. Um, And today I thought that that was kind of appropriate time to bring that up um, because today our topic is going to be a friend of mine who has been in Uh, recovery for quite a few years and um, she's going to start a little bit about why anonymity in that program is so important. So welcome. Thank you. I think we should describe for people where we're sitting. Yes please. So we at this moment are about 45 minutes, uh, let's see, we'd be north of Sedona. Uh, We are on 200 acres of land where we are pretty much the only people here. Yes. Uh, There are mountains all around us. It is currently raining in the desert. So there is the smell of desert rain, which I can only describe as sage and rosemary and juniper trees. Yeah, it was a scent that neither one of us had ever smelled before and it's really lovely. And it's super windy and we are using two very large black umbrellas to try to block the wind. Yes, yes. (laughs) So if there is any weird wind or noises, that is why we are also bundled up in Mm -hmm. winter gear. So we have winter coats on. So here we are. Here we are. So tell us a little bit about why the anonymity is so important first and then we'll get on to the recovery piece. Sure. Um, I always think there's a misconception that the principle of anonymity is to protect the person in recovery. Um, And sometimes it is. In my professional life, I do keep that fairly private. Uh, But more the principle of anonymity is about protecting the 12-step program that got me sober. Okay. Because if I come on your podcast and tell you, here's how I got sober, and it's the greatest thing ever, and then tomorrow I go drinking, Mm. it means that the people who listen to this won't believe in that program as a way to recover. And I will have harmed the program and myself. Mm. So um, that principle is is really steeped in in a good reason. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So, um, I know we know each other fairly well, but I don't know a whole lot about your recovery in general. I didn't know you before you were in recovery. Um, so tell me a little bit about your life maybe prior to, and then kind of what brought you to that program to finally, you know, you realize this was something that was really important that would be a part of your life. Sure. Um, I was always an exceptional drinker. Okay. (laughs) Um, From the first time that I drank in high school, I drank like a 75-year-old man who's been drinking his whole life. Like I never drank like my peers. I am I'm very good at drinking. Mm, Okay, so super Um, high tolerance. When my friends would drink 
you know, Bartles and James wine coolers, because I was in high school in the 80s. <laughs> um, I was drinking wild turkey with, uh, like, you know, the soccer players. Gotcha. Um, so I had a, a good capacity to drink. Okay. Um, I had a, a health problem as a child that had indicated at the time that I would not live a full life. So I kind of had this live fast, die young thing going on. Um, and I had a lot of um, insecurities, like every kid does. But when I drank, I was like, it was like a superpower. Mm. I was less awkward, I was less shy, um, I had more confidence. And so that just carried on for 25 years. Wow. Um, a lot of people who knew me were surprised that I had a problem. Okay. So, so you're every, a very functioning yes, alcoholic, got it. Which I have quibble with the phrase functioning alcoholic, right. but that's not But that's here what nor there. people typically know it as. That's what people know. Right. It as. Okay. Um, yes, I was able to maintain my job, I was able to maintain my marriage. I didn't ever get a DUI. Um, a lot of the consequences that pile up for people in their drinking did not pile up for me. Um, but I could not stop. There came a point somewhere, maybe around my 35th birthday, where I realized that if I was going to drink two drinks, I was going to not stop drinking. So I could have no drinks, or I was going to have all of the drinks. But I couldn't have three. Gotcha. It was, an, I couldn't do it. I had no off switch. So, um... The, the last seven years of my drinking were rough and I started to have blackouts. There started to be a lot of consequences in my marriage. Um, it was bad. And um, my bottom happened on my birthday, <laughs> my 42nd birthday. And uh, I woke up the next day and decided that it was time to do something about it. And um, I did go to a 12-step program. I never, my personal experience is I never went to a rehab. I just went to a 12-step program and as of this moment have not had a drink since. And um, it's over nine and a half years. Yeah, you're coming up on a big, yeah, a big year. Coming huh? up on a big one, but yeah. you know, we get today. So as of today, looking pretty good that I'm not going to have a drink today, particularly since we're at a retreat center that doesn't serve alcohol. Right. Um, the odds are really good I'll make it through the day. Probably true. Yes, <laughs> unless you want to get on that horrible <laughs> dirt road that is dangerous to drive on. Right. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean that's a quick version of my story. I don't think when I walked into that room on July 9th, 2012, that I really thought I was going to quit drinking. I really thought maybe they could teach me how to drink like a lady. Like that there was somehow I could have an off button installed. Mm. And um, I just cannot. Do you find that happens a lot? Do people show up in those rooms and are like, oh, I'm just going to learn how to do it better and yeah. not have a problem? Like that's a universal thought. Okay. And, and unfortunately, it is a universal thought forever gotcha. like I still occasionally go well it's been you know nine and a half years I'm sure now if I tried mm. I could control this mm -hmm. um but I know enough people who have relapsed and thankfully come back because a lot of people relapse and die right 
But the ones who come back and go, yeah, I thought maybe it would be all right after this amount of time, mm -hmm. um, it is in fact worse. Right. Because for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. So I have never had a single person in all of the years that I've had people come back and tell me their story um, say, yeah, it's great out there. I loved it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, and interestingly, almost every year, right after my anniversary in recovery, um, I'll be at a meeting, and it's happened every year, huh. where someone comes in and has relapsed after exactly the length of time that I've been sober. How interesting. Um, and so I always get reminded that I really just have the day that I'm in, and if, you know, if I do make it to my 10th anniversary this summer, it doesn't mean that I won't go out drinking on 10 years in one day. Right. Um, so it is a constant work mm. of staying sober. Okay. Constant. Mm. And I can never stop working at it. So right. it is something that I will work at for the rest of my life. Right. Right. And, and I would imagine that when you start to get into those thoughts and you start to like, well, but, well, but maybe if that is when it becomes really dangerous. It's, it's a slippery slope. Yeah. Um, and it's a thinking disease. Okay. You know, alcoholism is a thinking disease. Yeah. And so you have to solve a problem with the same piece of equipment, your brain, that is creating the problem. Right. So... It's a tricky thing because I can't listen to my inner monologue because mm -hmm. my inner monologue will tell me, for God's sakes, it's been nine and a half years. It'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And it won't be fine. Yeah. So I, I have to rely on other people. So when I hear that, I can call people and go, hey, so I'm starting to think, like, you know, maybe it's been long enough. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, play that forward. You know, mm -hmm. play that for, what does it look like after you have the two drinks? Mm. I'm like, oh yeah, that's not pretty. Yeah. Um, so, you know, recovery is a community. And yeah. so I do have about a million people I can pick up the phone and call yeah. or text and go, hey, so uh, I thought about drinking today. What do you think about? Or I dreamt about it. Mm. You know, I'll sometimes dream about drinking. Mm. And I'll wake up and it'll be so real that I'll have to like beat on my husband and say, did I go out drinking? Oh gosh, that's got to be scary. <laughs> no, go back to sleep. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So are there things that have gotten easier throughout the last nine and a half years or not so much? Yeah. I mean, I think about when you and I became friends and I don't know if you'll remember this, but we met on the Riverwalk, mm -hmm. which I know you remember. Mm -hmm. And then you were having a birthday and I came, you invited us to your birthday party and I came mm -hmm. and then we went out to dinner. Mm -hmm. And your husband bought me a martini. I do remember that. Yes, he did, <laughs> on your birthday. And, and that's the thing, is like, I can be around people who are drinking. Okay. I choose not to be around drunk people. Gotcha. Um, it makes me uncomfortable. Mm. And there is a point where I usually leave most functions. Um, like, I ghosted out at that birthday party. Mm -hmm. um, and nobody cares. Like, like nobody's right. happiness is based on me being there till midnight. Right. Um, but when we went to dinner and the waiter came over and said, you know, like, what are you drinking? And, and you got whatever you were drinking. And I said to you, if we're going to be friends, you should probably know that I don't drink. Yep. And you're like, eh, I don't care. And then you just went on with your <laughs> yeah. conversation. Um, that's a thing that I do now because if 
if it's a priority for a person, right. I can't really be friends with them. Makes sense. And so I just don't ever go down the path of cultivating an important friendship with mm -hmm. someone that drinking is a priority mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So what would you say for somebody who maybe is like, I maybe have a problem, I maybe don't, maybe I should check out one of those meeting things, like kind of on that on the fence of like, I don't really know if this is for me thing. Do you, do you have any suggestions or advice for somebody who like might be kind of considering it? Um, there's a lot of different paths that can give you information. One is to talk to your doctor, honestly. Okay. Um, most people that I have heard from, including myself, lied to their doctors about their drinking. That makes sense. Um, because at some point, the doctor says, like, so how much do you drink? Right. And you don't want to tell them that. Right. Um, but if you can have an honest conversation with your doctor about your drinking, they can run some tests that will help you see if it's starting to have a toll on your body, hmm. which is a good indication. Okay. Um, if you go to... A variety of different places websites but like Alcoholics Anonymous has a quiz on their website mm. you can take that test and you know like how many of those are you answering yes to gotcha. it can give you kind of a pretty good indication if you can be honest gotcha. and then you can also just go to a meeting hmm. um, there are a million meetings everywhere all the time and there are what's called open meetings, which means you can just go, like you could come to an open meeting with me. Hmm. Um, anybody can go and just check one out if you're curious. Hmm. Generally, everybody has a friend that's in recovery. Yeah. Talk to your friend that's in recovery. Okay. A million people have talked to me about friends and relatives like, oh, you know, I'm worried about this person or I'm worried about myself or you know me, do you think I have a problem? Um, so there's a lot of different ways to explore that, but I think the common thread to a lot of people is, are there consequences starting to pile up? Can you stop? Mm. You know, can you go a week without a drink? Can you go and have two drinks and stop? Do people around you constantly talk to you about your drinking? Mm. Um, are you making up a narrative around your drinking or anything else? I mean, my story is one of alcoholism, but all of the isms are the same. Yeah. If you have pain and you put a thing on top of the pain to make it go away, there's generally a problem. And that thing could be a gin martini, but it could also be a cupcake or drugs or gambling or sex or shopping or a thousand other things. Right. There are addictions all over the place. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I just think the common thread through all of them, it's funny, uh, I enjoy going on cruises and there's always 12-step meetings on cruise ships. That's so interesting. You had told me that and I had <laughs> no idea that that was a thing, They're but it sort makes of sense. hidden off in the library Yeah, no, somewhere. that makes a lot of sense though. But because it puts there's... all the addicts together in yeah. one meeting. Oh, that's so funny. Um, which is fascinating because I've never really thought about the food addictions or the gambling addictions. Right. But the commonality amongst us in those meetings is fascinating. Okay. So I could say, you know, if I have to hear one more martini being shaken, yeah. I'm just going to scream. And the gambler will say, yeah, that's how I feel about the ting, ting, ting of the casino. Yeah. And 
you know, the food person will say, do you know how many restaurants are on this ship? Right. <laughs> and yeah. So and I'm like, no, but I can tell you there's 14 bars because right. I counted them the minute I got on the ship. Yeah. Um, it, it is it is all the same. I always say like the great sucking hole. Like we all have some great sucking hole that we're putting something on top of instead of just getting all the gunk out of the hole. Yeah. And I think a 12-step recovery program for me got the gunk out of that hole mm, okay. and allowed the sun in mm. and gave me a mechanism to deal with life that was not poor gin on it. Mm, yeah. So do you feel like those meetings for you then are a really big part of it? Because I know sometimes we'll get people who've been in recovery for a very long time and they you know, don't go as frequently or don't feel like they need them or whatnot. What, what is it about that meeting or the community or whatever it is that you feel like is really important because I know you still go to meetings. I do and I go to quite a lot and I hope that I always do. Okay. Um, I And I work at that. Um, I travel a lot for work. I've been to meetings in 22 states wow. and four countries. Wow. I love going to meetings in other places. Yeah. Um, I hear different stories. I get different cultural opportunities. Um, you know, I've been to meetings in Hawaii and Alaska. And mm. So now that I've got the two hard states, I figure I should just go to a meeting in every state. For sure, yeah. Um, but in both instances, it was so great to hear, you know, a native Hawaiian's take on recovery. Mm. Okay. Um, because it was so powerful and so nature-based, and I still think about it. Mm. Um, so the meetings are really important for a variety of reasons. Um, there is the, I get nourished by meetings. Okay. So I am, I am fed. I hear the stories that I need to hear. Um, I learn from people. Mm. I used to think when I first got sober, there was like a list of things that were so horrible they would cause me to drink. Like if my husband dies, I will drink. If this happens, I will drink. Um, I now realize there is no list that gives you the right to go out drinking because I've heard from every single calamity you can imagine, you know, people lose their spouse and go to a meeting that day. Wow. Yeah. Um, they get a cancer diagnosis and they go to a meeting that day. Yeah, that's so responsible of them, but that yeah. would be hard to and make I've yourself do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, you know, sitting in hospice watching someone I know and love die and I went to a meeting mm -hmm. and one of the crusty old men at the meeting and I love the crusty old men at meetings because <laughs> they really helped get me sober um, said has anyone told her it's okay to go and I said I don't know so I went back to the hospital and I said you know it's okay you can go and she did that night you know that's the stuff you get from being sober yeah um, so that's why I go to meetings. I also go to meetings because I have an obligation in those 12 steps. The 12th step is to help other people. Oh, okay. And so I have an obligation, as people did for me, when I came in, all pitiful, <laughs> um, to help other people who are coming in, all pitiful, Yeah. Um, get the race of recovery that's in these steps yeah. so I have an obligation now to sponsor other women okay um I have an obligation to share my story in meetings when someone comes in and is crying and snotting over something that I've already done right 
it is my obligation then to tell them how I did it. Mm. Um, also, I, I go to meetings sometimes where there, I know there will be people in early recovery because I need to hear the stuff that comes out of the mouths of people in early recovery. They came out of my mouth mm-hmm. in early recovery yeah. to remind myself right. what early recovery looks like because I do not want to do that again. Right. It is awful. Yeah. And so I need to hear that and be reminded that I don't ever want that recovery clock that I keep in my head mm-hmm. to go back to one mm. because it is rough. Yeah. Um, people do it. And I'm eternally grateful that the ones who make it come back and tell us how awful it is out yeah. there because I need to hear from them. Yeah. And because I'm, if I don't, I, I think I could get in my head and convince myself that it would be okay. Right. Yeah. And I would imagine for somebody who really cares about, because I would imagine some of these people you really get attachments to, even mm-hmm. if it's not people that you know personally necessarily. But like, if you start to see somebody who's like, oh, no, I don't really need to go to meetings anymore. Like, I feel like that's probably a fright inducing thing because you can kind of see where it's potentially going. And you know where it's going yeah. and there's nothing you can do. Right. Um, I learned very early on that you cannot love another human sober. Hmm. You just cannot. Hmm. Um, you can love yourself sober. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you can't love another human sober. Right. You can point them in the right direction. You can shine the light on the path. Yeah. You can hold their hand while they walk the path. But you can't. Do it for them. Firemen carry them through the path. Right. They yeah. have to do the work. Yeah. And um, it is a lot of work. So, yeah, it is. You know, there's a common thread that you hear when people come back. Yeah. And again, I always have to say, the ones who are lucky enough to come back. Yeah, yeah, because they don't all no. do that, for sure. Um, say the same things. I lost touch with my sponsor. I stopped going to meetings. Um, so it's all those slow little things where you're like, slow. oh, little red flag here, little and red flag And then you here. just don't have any armor against that drink. Like, yeah. You know, I have a buddy who always says, like, Going to meetings, working with another alcoholic, it's like a fence he builds around his recovery. Hmm. And if he doesn't, the fence posts start to fall down. And oh. then it's very easy for an invader to come in. Yeah, <laughs> so it's like maintaining that, yeah. that structure. Then. Right. That's, that's really lovely. And I, I like that. You know, I need the fence. I need the moat. I need the guys with the flaming arrows. <laughs> I need all of that stuff yeah. because if I don't, I will start to think it's, it's going to be okay this time. Mm. And it won't. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm. I thought that for a lot of years. Like, yeah. oh, you know, I can get this under control and right. drink like a lady. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the steps? Because I know we were talking about this the other day, and I did not realize how the process works. And mm-hmm. you had mentioned something about where there's really only one step in particular that is... Um, I think you had said directly related to, you know, the substance or whatever it was, right. but I didn't realize that it wasn't something, I thought that you were constantly going through them, but it sounds like maybe people do this kind of differently and at different paces. Can you talk a little bit about the whole step process? Sure. They're in, um, in 12 step recovery. And again, I speak only from my own experience, right. which is of alcoholism. Right. Um, there are 12 steps. I would really wish that I could go through them all by memory. Let's see if I can. Okay. Okay, so the first is, um, came to believe that my life had become unmanageable. Okay. Um, and that I could not control my drinking. And this, which is, by the way, you will note, 
that's the only point in all of the 12 steps we're drinking is mentioned. Interesting. Half of that first step. And that is almost accomplished some of the time at least when people walk in the door, I would yeah. imagine. Usually by the time you walk through the door, you've kind of done the first step. Right. Because you're like, hey, I drank too much and my life is unmanageable. Right. Boom, yes. you've done the Unless first Unless you've step. been <laughs> ordered to be there that right. you have, you know, made that decision already. Um, the second step is came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Okay. Um, and that power can be a lot of things. And, and as I mentioned earlier, um, I've been to meetings all over the world and that takes a lot of different forms. Mm. Um, it is easy for people to think this has something to do with religion and I cannot say enough times that it does not. Mm. It has a lot to do, it has nothing to do with God, it has everything to do with you not being God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. That's a really good way to look at it. Like, you know, an easy way to look yeah. at it. Yeah. Um, the third step is, for me, was the hardest. Um, turning my will and my life over to a power greater than myself. Mm -hmm. um, for some people, that's just the, the power of recovery. Okay. Um, it can take a lot of forms. Yeah. Um, in the fourth step, uh, you sort of take an inventory of what you've done in your life to date resentments that you have um, it's a very cleansing process okay. um, in the fifth step you share the fourth step with somebody so you sit down with someone it's usually your sponsor it could be someone else um, I say the word sponsor a lot I should explain what that means oh yeah there's usually a person who's like your partner in recovery and we call them your sponsor okay um, it is a person that you trust. Okay. It is a very important relationship. It is 100% built on trust. Okay. Your sponsor does not need to be your friend. Okay. Um, does it have was, to be somebody that's been in recovery for like a really long time or not necessarily? Not necessarily. I, I sponsored my first person when I'd been in recovery for a year. Okay. Um, you want someone ideally who's been through the 12 steps. Got it. That um, but. You know, in a pinch, if they're one step ahead of you, they know more than you do. So, that, fair point. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah. But it is not a friendship. It can become one, but it is really this person has a very serious job to do. Gotcha. So, my sponsor, who I, my first sponsor, who I adore and respect and admire and love and believe saved my life, was not my friend. Mm. Uh, we didn't hang out. She had a job to do. Yeah. She had a big job. Yeah. Um, so in that fifth step, you share everything that you wrote down in your fourth step, all these resentments against people, places, things, institutions, you know, I'm mad at my ex, I'm mad at my boss, I'm mad at this person, all these things you, you list in your fourth step. Um, and then you identify what your part in that Ooh, resentment that's so is. so hard. So hard. <laughs> um, because it's not about what the other person did. It's about what you did. And being honest with and yourself. And being honest. And honestly, so in that fourth step, that big list of resentments and fears, um, that's the big sucking hole. That's mm. what you're pouring your gin on, your cupcakes, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so you gotta figure out what it is. Um, so those first three steps, you've you, you know, sort of turned your life over to something greater. Four, five, and six, you're kind of identifying, you're discovering your past and this mess and figuring out what to do about it and what your part is. Um, so in five, you shared that with another person. It could be your sponsor. It could be, if you are a person who has an organized religion, it could be your pastor. Gotcha. Um, it could be all sorts of people. Um, some safe person, I would say. Some assume. safe person. It okay. could be your therapist. Okay. Um, 
So then in six, you identify sort of all these character defects that have caused your behavior. Hmm. Um, what are the things about me that have made me act this way? Hmm. You know, am I filled with fear? Am I um, selfish? Am I um, grandiose? You know, what is it about me that makes me act this way? Hmm. Um, and identify what those are. So for me, I made a PowerPoint, <laughs> plotted them all did. on a chart, of course you did. presented oh, it to my sponsor, <laughs> and she's like, why don't you pick three? Like the three that are going to kill you first. Okay. Um, good advice. Yeah. And I worked on those. And then as the years have gone on, I, I work on some of the other ones. And sometimes when I misbehave, which I know is shocking, um, I can then look and go, which one of my character defects is on fire? Oh, that's interesting. Um, and is it, you know, what is it? Is it fear? Is yeah. it being selfish? Like, what What have I reverted back to? Uh -huh. And, like, come on, let's, you, know, you know better. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, that's six, six that's or seven. Six. six. Okay. Seven, um, you become willing to have those character defects removed. Okay. Which is an interesting concept, this willingness. Right. Um, because some of my character defects are things that I thought made me awesome. <laughs> um, I am independent and self-willed, and that has made me successful in business. Right. Um, it can also make me very difficult in personal relationships. So I was concerned that giving up some of my awesome character <laughs> defects would make me less me. Um, what it actually did was make room for a new me. Okay. With character attributes that gotcha. were things that I never had before. Hmm. Um, so that's seven. In eight, it's the scary one for me, I think. Lots of people. Um, you make a list of people that you owe an amends to. Oh, that's the amends one. The amends. Yeah. And an amends um, is not running around saying you're sorry unfortunately, because that would be so much easier. Um, it is to mend. Oh, okay. It is to repair a relationship. Mm. So it is the I'm sorry, but it is also what can I do to fix this? Right, the behavior that goes with it. Yeah. And um, some people that I made amends to said, oh, if you just stay sober, that's, that's all I want. Mm. Other people had a list prepared. <laughs> Of the things that I could do to repair the relationship. Hmm. Um, and some of those items were very difficult. Hmm. And I did them. Good for you. Um, and it probably sucked. It did. <laughs> and every now and then one sneaks up on me. Um, hmm. I recently had an opportunity to make an amends to someone that I had a business relationship 15 years ago. Hmm. Oh, it's really windy. Sorry about the wind, guys. Woo! <laughs> um... And I called her, it was an anniversary, uh, a business anniversary, and I called this woman, and um, man, talked something that happened 15 years ago. Oh, wow. And I have never, she's been on that list for, you know, nine and a half years yeah. of people that I own amends to, but she kind of had a little asterisk next to her name that was sort of the not just no, but hell no. Mm. Um, and that day, I was ready. And so I called her, and it was beautiful. Hmm. Um, she was warm. She did not take my call. So I left her a long and rambly voicemail <laughs> in the hopes that I would not actually have to talk to her and that I could just weasel out. Um, but 
but it gave her time to sort of hear what I had to say and compose her thoughts. Oh, okay. And then she called me back later in the day, and we had a really nice chat. And I have no desire to be friends with her. Right. Um, but that is not a person that if I run into them in the airport, I have to run the other way. Yeah, it like, feels lighter now. I have repaired that. Yeah. Um, so eight, you make the list of people. Nine, you start making the amends. Some of them, you know, the people are dead. You have to find other ways. Gotcha. Um, I just made an amends to a state park in another state. Oh my gosh. Because I've recently started camping again, and I had a memory that I burned a picnic table at a state park when I was in college because oh, wow. we ran out of firewood. Oh, wow. And I'm like, what a jerk thing to do. Huh. So I called the campground and she's like, and I explained the situation. I'm like, I'm really sorry, but like, you know. <laughs> I gotta do this. 40 years ago, 30 years ago, <laughs> I burned up one of your picnic tables. Is there some way I could like pay for a picnic table? And she said, I have no way to handle the bookkeeping of that. Huh. However, I do have a like ranger's discretionary fund. And I said, what does a picnic table cost? And she said, about 150 bucks. And I said, could I make a $150 donation to the Rangers Discretionary Fund? And she said, yes. And I said, great. Interesting. Um, so you gotta be a little bit creative sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Okay. Um, that's an interesting one. I've had really interesting opportunities to make very fascinating events. Yeah. Um, so that's 10. The 11th step is a lot of what I've been doing here. Um, it's an ongoing commitment to prayer and meditation. Hmm. And again, sometimes people hear the word prayer and they knee-jerk back to some religion that was force-fed them as a child. Yeah. And they put a wall it's up. just a negative And it doesn't have to be that. Yeah. Um, but it is the ability, you know, and prayer and meditation are put together. Um, I've heard it said, and I always like this, Prayer is talking to whatever you believe your higher power to be, and meditation is listening. Hmm. And that prayer can be, thanks for keeping me sober for another day. Please help me to stay so today. Hmm. And that's enough. Hmm. Thank you is enough. Hmm. Uh, there's a great book I love um, by an author named Anne Lamott and it's called Help Thanks Wow. And she says those are the only three prayers you need. Okay. There's help, mm -hmm. thanks, and wow. And the wow is what we're looking at. Yeah. Like you just look around in nature and go, wow, or somebody does something really nice for you, and you say, wow. Yeah. Those are prayers. Okay. So, so it doesn't <coughs> have to be that religious, you know, on your knees with it your doesn't. hands. And some people it is. Right. Um, but some people it's not, and they still maintain beautiful recovery. Um, so that's an important thing for people to understand that recovery and religion and spirituality are not all intertwined. Um, it is just that notion of there is a power in this world and I'm not it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. an active alcoholic is pretty much sure the world is revolving around them. Mm. And if you can get away from that, you can get some clarity and some recovery. Gotcha. Okay. And then that 12th step is just to go out into the world and do good. Okay. I think I skipped the 10. You did skip 10, I think. 10 is a daily inventory. Oh, yeah. We did it's skip a that daily one. inventory. Um, so at the end of the day, I like to do mine at the beginning. Um, at the end of the day, you sort of look around and say, 
you know, did I do something today that I'm not proud of that I need to repair or did I do great things today and I really love that I helped this person in this way? It's just kind of a look at the day, measure it up. If there's any mess that you did that needs to be cleaned up, you know, ideally by the time you get to the 10th step, you're not behaving like a jerk. Hmm. So the things that you do are kind of small and you go, hey, you know. Do more of that or less of that. Right. I, I'm really sorry that I, you know, threw my shoe at you earlier today. Right. <laughs> I didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so that's 10. And then 12, 11's prayer, meditation. And 12 is, you know, share this gift that we've been given. Um, and practice these principles in all of our affairs, which means... Um, I practice the 12 steps of recovery in our friendship. I practice it with my waitress at lunch. Um, I practice it with my family. I practice it with the people I love. I practice it even more with the people I dislike. Mm. Um, it's taking that out into the world and, and trying to be a better human. Okay. And it's also helping others who are coming into the program. Yeah. And I know there are programs within the program for like family members as well. Right. right? There is a program called Al-Anon. They are sister. They're not related. Okay. They're sort of cousins. Okay. <laughs> but they use a different version of the 12 steps. Okay. Um, there's Alateen um, for kids who have parents in recovery. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Um, there are programs to support the people who love Addicts. Okay. Um, th those programs are not to fix the addict. They're to right. fix the person who loves the addict. Right. I am not. I do not have personal experience in the sister programs, mm -hmm. but the people I know who do um, just get a tremendous benefit from that. Yeah. And it really helps. You know, the parents of someone. You know, you love a person in recovery, and you can love them to death. Yeah. You really can. Yeah. And you know that. For sure. The, help people to understand where to draw those boundaries and you just had two great episodes about boundaries and that's yeah. it yeah you need to draw boundaries with addicts yeah also yeah and that's so hard and you know because you love us yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um, exactly well and and placing boundaries in general is uncomfortable for right. everybody and then when you get something that is so emotionally charged as addictions it, it almost makes it even more difficult and it's so challenging i'm not sure if it was your podcast or another i was listening to i do listen to a lot um where the person said their parent threw them out and that's the reason they got sober mm. um and you know how hard is it for i, I can't ever imagine because i'm not a parent mm. but that moment where you have to do that must be excruciating but then the child now in recovery recognizes that's the moment that started them down the path mm -hmm. yep and if that had never happened it right. may not have been you know there may not have been a recovery at all right yeah right. yeah that's so hard oh this is such interesting information i don't know enough about this these 12-step programs but i really well it's interesting because in listening to your podcast you sound very much like a person in recovery and you're not i know you had mentioned <laughs> that and i and i thought that was so interesting just because i know about obviously in my field i know about substance and addiction and i know about the programs and everything and i had to sit through a couple in when i was doing my master's that was part of my program we had right. to go and be in person in a couple of meetings just so that we knew what we were talking about but i i was never in the program so I didn't know all of the facets of it right um, and so it's so interesting to hear from somebody who's been in it for an extended period of time um, and you know, well and my nine and a half years sounds like a long time right. but 
you know, there's people in my meetings with, well, there's people in, close to me that have 35 years, wow. and in my meetings with 40 and 50 years, um, I once, there was a great lady, and she had over 50 years, wow. and she said, you want to know what the secret is to long-term sobriety? And I'm like, obviously, yeah. <laughs> and she said, don't drink and don't die. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, thanks for that. <laughs> But, I mean, it's I true mean, though. That is. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Oh goodness. All right. So before we finish up, is there one big thing that you, if somebody was kind of on the fence about, um, you know, if they need this or not, or if they are maybe starting out and they're really struggling, is there just one or a couple of things that you really feel like would be important for somebody like that to hear? For me, the magic of recovery has been in the meetings that I go to. Okay. So if you went to a meeting and you thought it was awful, please try more. Okay. They're like restaurants. Mm. You know, I can go to one and love it and you might think it's not great. Yeah. Um, you should think it's great. Yeah. And if you don't, go to another one. That's so interesting because that's what I tell people about therapists all right. the time. That's what you if, told me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you don't connect with your therapist, give them, you know, a couple of sessions. Because obviously people, when they come to therapy, aren't having a great life. That's not usually why people show up to therapy, right. right? But if you go three or four times and you just really don't feel like you have a connection with that person, find a new therapist. There are millions of us. Well, and that's what we say in recovery, too. Like... No one rolls into a meeting at the top of their game. You know, generally something's <laughs> happening that's caused you to come. Right. Um, <coughs> so do find a meeting that you love. When you go to a meeting for the first time and people say, you know, usually at the beginning of the meeting, they say, is anybody here for their first meeting or first week of meetings or in their first month of recovery? And you stick up your hand people will reach out to you. Huh. They will say, here's my phone number, please call me. Oh, wow. And they mean it. Mm. They're not kidding. And it's hard to believe that people are that genuine and kind and they really do mean it. Mm. And what they're saying is, hey, before you pick up the drink, mm -hmm. pick up the phone and maybe I can help you. Mm. And that sounds really dumb. Mm. But I got sober on a Monday and by Friday, I would have killed a man who was walking down the street with a gin martini in his hand just to get it out of his hand. Yeah. And I called a stranger, uh -huh. and she helped me, and I didn't drink that day. Wow. And, and it's that simple. Yeah. Um, so that support system that is That support really system is, is the difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because they understand. If someone is in early recovery and says to me, you're not going to believe this crazy thing that I'm thinking. I'm going to be like, yeah, I do believe it because yeah. I probably thought it. Right. Um, and I would imagine that, so that, um, you know, meeting practice goes along with all of the other self-care stuff, right. right? I know that you are really big into all of the self-care stuff. I mean, here we are in this beautiful retreat, right? And, and you've been, you know, hiking and meditating and journaling and that's important for you. But I would imagine that those meetings for you kind of fall in that same scope of it your self-care. And I will tell you that the beginning of my recovery did not have that facet of self-care. Oh, interesting. Um, all I could do at the beginning of my recovery was recover okay um, you know that first year every single day is a day that you've never been sober mm. so you got to get through you know your first Thanksgiving and your first Halloween and oh my gosh birthday. Now it's my yeah. birthday and 
you know, I have to see this person and I haven't seen this person without a drink in my hand in 15 years. And, yeah. and so that first year is just like a merry-go-round of trying to stay sober. Yeah. And then you kind of get through that and then you can start to put some pieces together to sort of rebuild your whole life and your ability to take care of yourself. No. Um, but that doesn't come right away. It takes some time. Yeah. And then your body has just been like wrung out. Yeah. You know, so it takes your body a while to recover. Mm -hmm. um, it is amazing. I really notice it with women because I am one. <laughs> you know, you get them like 90 days sober and they look like all new people. I oh, mean, wow. their skin brightens up and oh, their yeah. smile and their eyes are bright. That makes sense. Their hair looks great. Yeah. And you're like, wow, it just, it's shocking how fast and resilient our bodies can be yeah. um, when we stop putting things that aren't good for them in at an excess. Right. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. For Whatever sure. that is. For sure. Yeah. For sure. So I think that's it is that, you know, there is help and it comes in the form of people that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Um, and people you maybe haven't even met yet. And people you frankly don't think you have anything in common with. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I thought I was better than a lot of the people in meetings or who I thought was going to be in a meeting. I'm like, I am not like some guy drinking out of a sack under a bridge. Right. Well, you know, it's Park Avenue to Park Bench. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's everything in between. Yeah. And um, I am neither better nor worse than anyone who struggles with this disease. Yeah. I am just one of us. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, you know, getting over that idea. Yeah. It just, it's it all takes time, but... If someone's listening and they're starting to wonder if they have a problem, you know, just the wondering. Yeah. I don't wonder if I have a problem with gambling. I don't. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's just not a problem right. for me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't wonder if I have a problem with shopping. I know I have a problem with drinking. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, by the time you get to the point of wondering, it's probably a pretty good indication that it's worth that exploring. It's a yes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with me this thank week you. and coming on this amazing retreat adventure as well. Um, it's supposed to snow tonight and we're a couple of gals from Florida. So, yeah, yeah, so this is going to be real interesting, but man, the view right now is beautiful. So thank you for everyone who joined us this week. And if you think substance use may be a problem for you, please reach out for support. There are all sorts of things that you can do to start your recovery journey. And please ask for help if you feel like you need it. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you again next week.